Thank you, Steve. How are we? Good morning, everyone, with your, your mumbled goods. It's good to see you. My name is Tim. Uh, like they said, I'm the worship minister here. Uh, I will confess, it would be far more comfortable for me to have a guitar and just to be singing everything I'm saying. For some reason, I could do that all day and not be nervous. But for whatever reason, when I'm supposed to expound God's word, I'm, I'm just terrified of saying something. Well, God said that he loves everyone. Whoa, 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 let me tell you what I mean. And I, I'm, I'm terrified. I don't want to screw anything up. So y'all could be in prayer for me. Uh, this morning, we are in a, a text where Paul's tone kind of changes from where he's been in Romans, uh, especially Romans 9 through 11. It's this doxology. Uh, it's this, this worship song that, that Paul kind of breaks into. And the Bible, Romans is a letter that's meant to re be read from the beginning to the end. And so when we preach sermons, we want to really get into the details, the nitty-gritty of the text. But what that kind of does to us is it doesn't allow us to actually follow along with the emotion, following along with the, the logic, the thinking of the author as they're writing this. And so Paul is at this, this mountaintop where he's worshiping. Paul is he's finishing this marathon. His hands are outstretched. He's like, yes, I did it. And we're kind of this morning, like walking in at the 26th mile and, and trying to walk over the finish line. And we're like, I don't feel as excited as Paul does. Well, yeah, because you haven't, you haven't been journeying with Paul this whole way. So that, I say that for two reasons. I, I don't expect you, this is a very uh, boisterous, very excited text. And I don't expect you to try to like develop some sort of uh, don't put the pressure on yourself to be like, why am I not excited about this? I should be more excited. Paul's so pumped. He's so amped. Why am I not? You, you don't have to be because it's kind of like if you just knocked on my door and I opened it and I was like, praise God. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I just got here. What are you talking about? What's happening? The, the other thing I, I want to encourage us in is if this is the only time that you are opening up, cracking open your Bible to read through these texts that we go through, you're always going to be lagging far behind especially as far as your, your heart is concerned and your mind is concerned. If you're wondering, I don't feel very passionate about the scripture that we're talking about. I don't, I don't feel very passionate in worship. I don't feel very passionate whenever I come to church about all the stuff that when these ministers and uh, the pastors, when they get on stage, they're so excited and they're talking about all these things. I don't feel as excited about it because you're probably not journeying along. You're not running the race. You're just stepping in in the 26th mile right at the very end. And so there's no, there's no investment there. So that's just my encouragement, to read your Bible. And I would encourage you specifically, as we're reading through a text uh, here at the Parkway Church, I would encourage you to read along with us. So that as we talk about these things, they'll be fresher in your mind. You'll be able to recall things a lot easier. Uh, and I, I'll tell you what, it makes our job a lot easier because a lot of time we got to like summarize and review a lot of things. We're always going to do that. But those are just, that's not even about the text. That's just, that's just for free, okay? <laughs> so... Tim's nervous. Read your Bibles. Amen. Okay. I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to uh, crack open this doxology. Uh, so, Father, we confess that as we sang, we need you. Uh, apart from Christ, we cannot even approach you. We actually want nothing to do with you apart from your spirits indwelling. So every desire of ours that in any way wants to know you is from your spirit, and we, we glorify you for that. God, give us humility today. Teach us all we have, you have provided. I pray that you would continue to provide all that we need. pray that we would worship you this morning, that you would be glorified. Lord, to you be all glory forever and ever. Amen. So, our text this morning is a doxology. <clears throat> and you've probably heard that term. If you grew up around church folk, uh, you've heard the term doxology because you think of this one particular song that we call the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him. I'm going to forget it now. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Some people don't sing the amen, but that's called the doxology. It was written in the, the late 1600s. And uh, that's kind of, whenever we hear this word, that's immediately what we think of. But why is that called the doxology? Well, because it's a doxology. What is a doxology? My first sermon that I ever preached at Parkway, almost two years ago, uh, was also a doxology. And I kind of went through this whole explanation of this is exactly what a doxology is. And so I'm not going to assume that you've treasured up in your heart every word I've ever preached 
especially one from two years ago. So I need to do a quick review of what exactly a doxology is. What am I talking about when I say that? A doxology is a literary style, or it is a, a style or a form of Hebrew worship. Okay? So all these English teachers that are here, they're like, literary style? Yes, I'm listening. This is awesome. A doxology is kind of like a sonnet. A sonnet has 14 lines, 10 syllables in each line. There's a format. And if you fill that format, you write this poem in that format, then it is therefore a sonnet. Or a Japanese haiku, one of Jeff's favorite poetry styles. It's a, it's a three-lined uh, poem that has five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. 17 syllables total. That's a literary style, a poetic style called a haiku. In the same way, in Hebrew poetry, in Hebrew hymns and songs, there's something called a doxology that follows a very specific format, a particular format. And this is exactly what that is. It does two things. It accomplishes two things. A doxology expresses praise to God, and it does so, second part, eternally. It talks about God's eternality. So a doxology consists of a praise of God's attributes, who God is, what he has done, his glory, his nature, and then says something to the effect of forever and ever, to everlasting to everlasting, for all generations forever. Okay? So maybe we've heard some of these before. Another thing to note, a doxology, a doxology is only written about God. So it, yes, it's this type of poetry, but there's no husband in ancient Israel on Valentine's Day writing his wife a doxology. These are only about Yahweh, always about Yahweh. So they're basically a formalized, to kind of give a, great, uh, a quick definition, a formalized form of worshiping God, one that communicates reverence, communicates awe, and communicates God's importance, his glory. It's meant to put the one reciting it in this position of humility. They're saying, God is glorious, he is great. To him be glory forever and ever. So you probably know a doxology, and you don't even realize it. Uh, in the Psalms, uh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then what does it say? His love endures forever. That's a doxology. Give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His love endures forever. So if you want more, a wealth of examples, you can go back to listen to our sermon from Ephesians two years ago. Uh, but I want to get to our text today. Verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So like I said, this is a very different tone from what Paul's been, uh, what we've seen from Paul lately. He actually just kind of breaks into this song seemingly out of nowhere. He's been, he's been talking a lot of dense, controversial theology, talking about election, predestination, uh, showing mercy to some, but withholding mercy from others. It's been really intense stuff. I'm not going to summarize 12 weeks of sermons. We've been in Romans 9 through 11 for 12 weeks, and that's what Paul's been talking about. And this serves, this doxology this morning serves as the crescendo, the exclamation point at the very end. So had we been walking through this, had we been reading along, we would be at the same place as Paul, by God's grace. We would say, oh, the death of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He says, oh, which is just the letter omega, because it's almost to say there are no words. As he examines the theology he's just covered in Romans 9 through 11, he says, oh, the depth, the riches, the wisdom. So I want to talk briefly. What has brought Paul to this explanation? Where is this coming from? The verse that we talked through last week uh, part of that was Romans 11:30 through 32. This is just before our text this morning. And I filled in these brackets. Those aren't from the, <clears throat> from the original text. I put those there to make it easier because it's a bunch of yous and theys, just so it's easier to understand who we're talking about. For just as Gentiles <clears throat> were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so Israel too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to Gentiles, Israel also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he, have, that he may have mercy on all. And out of this, Paul says, oh, the depth. He exclaims, 
he declares. He, he begins singing. He's dictating this letter. He's not writing it with his hand. He's, he's dictating it. And so the one writing it, he captures Paul's worship. Most likely, whenever this letter was read to the Romans, they would join in and sing along. As this was, as this was read, and as it says, Amen, at the very end, they would join in. And they would all say it together as a congregation. Paul's doxology this morning is founded upon this incredible reality, that God has bound both Jews and Gentiles, Jews meaning those who are descendants of Abraham, of the nation of Israel, and Gentiles, everyone who is not in this category. <laughs> God has bound Jews and Gentiles to disobedience. So for instance, the Gentiles, they were pagans throughout Israel's history, always oppressing Israel, worshiping demons. But then Christ comes, and what happens? The Jews re reject their Messiah. They reject their promised king. Jesus is hanging on the cross. The Jews put him on. And who's the first person to make a comment about it after Jesus dies? There's a Roman centurion, a Gentile. He says, surely this man was son of God. So now Gentiles are being shown mercy. They're turning from disobedience. And they're worshiping Christ, the, the means provided through which one is accepted into God's kingdom. And instead now, <clears throat> the Jews are rejecting their own Messiah. All of these promises that were promised to the Jews, now they're saying... Nope, not this guy. That's not the way we wanted it to happen. And so they're rejecting. And Paul takes this mystery and he says, Oh, the depths. Because also in Romans 11, it's revealed, Paul says, that one day the Jews looking at these Gentiles being saved, they will say, that actually looks pretty good. Us trying to walk in our self-righteousness, us trying to earn our own uh, earn God's favor through our law-keeping, that does not look as sweet as what the Gentiles have been given. And so to give you kind of an illustration of what Paul's talking about, it's kind of like the story of the prodigal son. If you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, two sons of this, this father, one of them says, hey, I want my inheritance now, which is kind of like saying, hey, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me the money that I am going to get eventually. <clears throat> Takes all the money, he squanders it in sinful living, and then he's broke, and he's thinking, I used to have, I, I see the servants, the lowest in my father's house, they have, they're better off than me. So I'll just go back to my dad's house and see if I can be a servant. Comes back with humility, recognizing his sin, recognizing he's evil, corrupt, and wicked. And the father meets him halfway on the road. He meets him, he runs out to him, puts a ring on his finger, covers him with a robe, and he says, my son, you, you've returned. He throws a, celebrate, a celebratory feast. He rejoices. He's excited. And what does the, the older brother do? What does the other brother do? Crosses his arms. He won't go inside to the celebration. He says, what about me? I've been following your law. I've been following what you've told me to do, Dad. I've been working all this time, doing exactly what you wanted me to do. Where's my party? Where's that celebration? And so he refuses to go in. He just crosses his arms. Well, I'm, not, I'm not excited about that. And that's what's happening within the church in Rome. Paul is noticing as he looks around the church, there's a lot of Gentiles here. This morning we look around the church. Yep, a lot of Gentiles. And so people start to question, has God been unfaithful to his promises to Israel? Has God been unjust? <clears throat> his people are being disobedient? Is this... Does God not know what he's doing? Paul says, no, he knows what he's doing. He is, he is allowing these Gentiles to be shown mercy so that they might inspire in Israel repentance. So that Israel will see, I could be justified through Christ. He's the Messiah. That is so much lighter a burden than what I'm trying to carry by earning God's favor on my own. So that is the context of Paul's statement. <clears throat> He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. There are a few things I, that are going on here that I want to take a closer look at. Paul is going to demonstrate here in this first half of verse 33 <clears throat> that the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God are beyond our comprehension. They're beyond our minds. So note that Paul does not say 
oh, the height of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I think this is interesting. He doesn't say, oh, the breadth of the riches, oh, the, the vastness of the riches. I think it's significant that he says, oh, the depth. I, uh, I had a roommate in college who was very smart, like ridiculously smart. If you gave him any instrument, like musical instrument, he could play it. He would just say, what notes are these? You tell him, he'd be like, oh, okay. Like, no problem. There's no problem for him. He, uh, he had this, he majored in this like honors program that also got him a master's at Texas A&M University, whoop. And he uh, took this exam that's like rumored across campus as the hardest exam you can take at A&M. He took the exam and he wrote on the back of it, thanks prof for the easy A. So he's a, little, he's a fun guy to be around. He's a little relatable, you know. So that was one of my roommates. <clears throat> and he, uh, one day we were watching TV and this Old Navy commercial came on. We were watching like a football game. And Old Navy commercials are always weird to me, like people dancing. And I'm like, but you were just at an Old Navy. So that's like terrifying. Children are crying. So I would not be dancing like that if I was at an Old Navy. But that was happening. And so that's what, those are the comments that we made as roommates. Look at that weird guy. Look at how he's dancing. He's a strange person. And then this guy, my other roommate, he says, Oh, man, look at that. A lot more polyester in that fabric. What are you talking about? He was like, well, Old Navy is putting more polyester in their fabric because the last three quarters in the petroleum businesses have been really low, so they got to put more, they got to make a sale somewhere, so they're selling it to Old Navy, so there's more polyester. What? What are you talking about? He's, so he's a really relatable guy. He's really fun. He's a fun guy. I say that because whenever someone's a deep thinker like that, He's a very deep thinker. We call him a deep thinker because what? He, he, he thinks beneath the surface. Me and my roommates were like, <laughs> look at that guy's hair. And he's like, well, what about cotton crops? You know, he's in a whole different world than we are. So I think when it's talking about the depth of the riches, I think what he's meaning, what Paul is meaning is underneath everything, further than you can think. What we think is very shallow in comparison to what God thinks. The wisdom and the knowledge of God is far deeper than we can even fathom. We're shallow people. We're shallow creatures. Oh, the depth of God and his plan of salvation given to the Jews and Gentiles. In Psalm 92.5, this is kind of echoed throughout the Old Testament, but I picked these two specifically. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. I think Paul's borrowing language from this. Psalm 36, 5 through 6. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountain of God. So all these things are real high. Oh, they're so high up and everything. But your judgments are like the great deep. They undergird everything. So, in verse 33, I believe that Paul's primarily drawing our attention in the context of Romans 9 through 11, talking about this crazy plan of salvation that's beyond our understanding to save both Jews and Gentiles through Jewish disobedience, saving Gentiles, through the Gentiles being saved, bringing Jews from their disobedience. I believe that Paul is trying to point out the wisdom, the design, the sovereignty, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. But what about riches, you asked me? You said nothing about riches, Tim. So I don't want to get us bogged down by grammar and vocabulary and Greek grammar and all that, but I do need to mention a couple of things real quick. There are two views regarding how to translate this verse. And this, I walked into this verse, I had no idea that it was so debated. But here it is. There are two views. <clears throat> you could translate this verse as, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, which I think is a very faithful trans translation. Or you could say, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So either we're talking about three different things, God's riches, God's wisdom, God's knowledge, or this morning we're talking about the depth of the riches. It's like a, God has really deep pockets. They just keep going on and on and on. And they're filled with wisdom and knowledge that we cannot grasp. We can't, we can't go that deep. This makes it hard for me because I have to tell you what this means. It makes my job very difficult. I read through all these different people. I'm like, what does it mean? Which one's right? My conclusion, either one can be right. Okay? 
So we don't have to worry too much about it. I think that in the context of Romans 9 through 11, though, Paul seems to talk a lot about God's wisdom and his knowledge and his planning. And I don't see a lot of reference to riches. The one thing you do see about riches is earlier in Romans 9, he talks about the riches of salvation. Those are given. The riches of salvation given to Gentiles. And so you can convince me. I, I'm convinced. That sounds great. Excellent. But if it wasn't right, either way works for me. It seems, though, in this context, Paul is primarily going to be talking about wisdom and knowledge. And so that's what I'm going to try to primarily talk about. Okay? But if you have a, a, an argument that's really good, then come and talk to me because I'm, I'm all for it. So, the other thing that is strange about this, biblical scholars, what we, t what we tend to do, I think this is really important for us to understand, when we study the Bible, we take it text by text, word by word, and we look really closely, which is really great, and I love that. But sometimes we forget that Paul is just dictating this letter. He's just speaking this letter. So sometimes, if he references a word in chapter 4, and then again in chapter 13, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're connected. Because he's not drawing it out. It's kind of like we have this mentality. Have you ever written a text where you had to like disappoint somebody? You had to tell them something really disappointing? You knew they were going to be kind of like heartbroken and mad about it or frustrated with you. So you're like, you're like sitting there for like an hour trying to author this text. You're really great. I promise I don't hate you. So like one time I had scheduled lunch with this guy like three times in a row and something would always come up. It was awful. So like the third time I'm doing it, this is the third strike, he's going to hate me. I'm like, hey man, <laughs> isn't life funny? I'm like really trying to work on my words so that he understands I'm picking the right words that are perfect so he's not offended. Paul's not doing that here. Paul's not texting. He's not in this culture where we, where we you know, oh, which emoji works? Well, that one doesn't work. This one works a little better. Oh, no, 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 I'll go back to the other one. That's not what he's in. He's not working in that sort of capacity. He's, he's talking. I don't think his point is to create this huge scheme of, well, riches refers to this and wisdom refers to this and this and this. Sometimes scholars, that's what they end up doing. And I don't think that that's necessarily the most faithful thing to the text. All that to say, I think Paul's wanting to draw our attention to wisdom and knowledge. Now, what is meant by wisdom and knowledge? We've got to define a lot of words this morning. I don't think also, I do not think, that wisdom and knowledge, we need to play some game where we're trying to define, oh, knowledge is just facts and wisdom is how you apply them. Again, I don't think that's Paul's point. That doesn't seem to be, otherwise he would kind of say it's his point. I think this is what's called a hendiades or a hendiades, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, if I said, I'm going to go and visit some friends in Houston this weekend, am I saying, I'm going to go and then do something completely different, which is visit my friends in Houston? Or if I say, I'm sick and tired of all of Zach's pirate analogies, am I saying, I'm sick and I'm also this other different thing, tired, or are those being linked together to describe one unit, one thing? This is fun. Greek grammar, we're loving it. All of that to say, I think Paul's focus here is that as he looks over God's plan of salvation, he is amazed. He's brought to worship by God's infinite, deep wisdom and knowledge and the riches of that wisdom and that knowledge. So to summarize 33, at least the first half, <laughs> hey, we're doing great on time. The wisdom... And the knowledge of God is simply too deep for our comprehension. So we, we could not have come up with God's plan of salvation. We still have difficulty under, understanding it. Go read Romans 9 through 11 and say, I completely understand what this is saying. It's difficult. It's beyond our comprehension. And that's why Paul had to write it. Thinking on God's wisdom, David says in Psalm 139, 6. Speaking of God's knowledge and wisdom, the riches of it. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Haddon does something really cute right now where there's my son Haddon. He's a two-year-old. He's very cute. Very got chubby cheeks, which is really cute. And uh, whenever he, there's something across the room that he wants, he'll like be sitting in a chair and he'll go, can't reach it. And he'll just do that randomly. And uh, 
That's what he's saying. That's what David's saying. There's God's wisdom. It's over there. I can't do it. It's just, I can't do it. There's nothing I can do. It's just too far. Paul continues in the second half of this verse. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. That should be your word of the day. Inscrutable. This is, you go to the, someone brings you some food. (laughs) This is inscrutable. Say something like that. You'll look really smart if you actually are using that word correctly. This statement is just meant to clarify what Paul has said in the first half of verse 33. Paul isn't saying something new here. He's just kind of clarifying. He's fortifying his argument. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. What what do these words mean? What is he talking about when he says judgments? It's interesting. In in Greek, this word judgment, uh, it's actually the word krima, which is where we get the word crime from. It's as if you're standing in court. If you committed a crime standing in court before the judge, and the judge hands down his judgment. And it says you are, you're free to go or you are guilty. And so sometimes in the Bible this word is translated as condemnations or condemnation. And so I think think what's kind of being uh, talked about here, what Paul's trying to reference is that uh, the reasons behind his judgments, whom he condemns and whom he shows mercy to, you can't, you can't search it. There's this uh, thing that happens in, one of the, in three of the Gospels. There's this rich young ruler who is a uh, young ruler who is rich. And he walks up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, do, it, do what the law requires of you. And he goes, oh yeah, I follow the law. I've done, I've done everything. I've done all the things. Jesus goes, okay, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor. And the rich guy goes, nope. He walks away, very sorrowful, the text says. This is kept paraphrased. That's, that's not in the Bible, okay? Uh, then the disciples look at Jesus, and they're like, what? That guy was super cool, Jesus. And you just like, we're like, peace out, bro. What are you thinking? He'd be cool in our posse. We, could be, we don't have to eat McDonald's anymore. That's what they're thinking. They're like, what? This makes no sense. Jesus says, it is very difficult It'd be easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than a rich man to to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're like, what? They're astonished, it says. And so we see that there's this guy who looks to the disciples to be, he's following the law, he's doing everything right, and yet Christ doesn't show mercy to him. And yet, we have Paul who's breathing murderous threats out uh, against the church in the beginning of Acts. He's a Pharisee, you know, the guys that are always trying to convince Jesus to say something wrong so they can kill him. Paul's a Pharisee. He's writing to arrest more Christians, possibly to put them to death as well. And Jesus comes to him. Paul doesn't stop Jesus on the road and say, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus stops Paul. He says, why are you persecuting me? Paul's like, what? What's happening? Jesus says, you, you are going to share the gospel. You're going to share it with rulers and, and Gentiles. And I'm going to show you how much you're going to have to suffer for my name. Again, paraphrase. We look and we say, why the rich young ruler? Why is he not shown mercy? If your neighbor came up to you and said, hey man, how do I inherit eternal life? You'd be like, this is the best evangelism experience I've ever had. And Jesus says, no, you don't want after the kingdom. Mercy is withheld, apparently, but given to Paul. Controversial. Go back and read all the other sermons. Those dealt with the hard stuff. I'm just talking about the singing today, okay? (laughs) So God's works, God's, uh, his ways is included in this. This It's just saying the same thing. The way that God works, the way that he does things, the way that he goes about executing his plan of salvation. We look at it, we criticize it, we can... We can think anything we want about it, but we, we cannot understand it. We ought to recognize our humble position when we approach the throne of God in the midst of his, his planning, his execution of his plans. We need to recognize that we are, we are grasshoppers. We're grasshoppers, as Isaiah says. I was like, but they don't look like they're getting that reference. Of course, yeah, that's a weird reference. You're all grasshoppers. No, 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 no. Ways refers specifically in this context, right along with judgments, to the observable works of God, how God does things. 
So to sum up all of verse 33, I would just say, the wisdom and knowledge of God is beyond our comprehension. This is what this text means. He's beyond our comprehension, his wisdom, his knowledge, and we cannot fathom his decisions, and we can't even interpret his ways. That's what it means to be inscrutable. It's uninterpretable to us. It's beyond us. It's too deep for our shallow minds. Now let me just encourage us about what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that we cannot know God. He is certainly not saying that. Paul is not saying that we cannot know deep things or we can't understand or know stuff that God knows and God understands. Because some will say, for instance, well, you know, concerning this difficult doctrine, concerning the doctrine of election, that's something that God does and we can't understand anything about God, so we can't really say whether our view is right or not. And We should just leave the, that high and that deep stuff up to God. We can't understand. No, we can't understand because it's revealed to us in his, his word. In revelation of his word, we can know that God is Trinity. But if I asked y'all to com comprehensively explain to me the doctrine of the Trinity, how comfortable would you feel with that? Not very, because it's just beyond us. We, can't, we don't know. We don't understand. So we can know things about God, certainly, but we cannot comprehend him fully. As one theologian says, I can apprehend God, I can grab his wrist, but I cannot fully comprehend God. So a, a great way of putting it is, if you've ever been scuba diving, I have not. I, that's like one of the most terrifying things. I don't know why you would do that. I'd rather go skydiving than scuba diving. Those are both terrifying. I'd rather not do either of those. Okay? But if you've ever been scuba diving, and specifically really deep scuba dives, if there's like, if the ground's so much further, they'll have these markers that say, hey, scuba divers, you should not go past this marker, lest you die. Because there's this crazy thing that happens with your mind because of the gas mixture or something called narcosis. Once you get at a certain depth where you just, you lose rational thought. And so you would think, I'm going to swim to the top. And you just keep swimming down and you would die. And so they have these big red markers that say, don't swim any further. As we, as we read the word, we must recognize that God's wisdom, God's knowledge, and God's riches, we see them as we, as we are diving. We see them beyond us. They're so deep. So we can't see the bottom, but we know it's, it's down there. It's down there further. But those markers are God's word. This is where we can swim. Anywhere we want. We can just swim all day. As long as we have oxygen. As long as we have the spirit. That's not where the analogy is supposed to go. Anyways, you can swim anywhere throughout the word. But we don't need to begin to just create our own doctrine that goes beyond those markers, that goes beyond what God has revealed to us in his word. Does that make sense? So yes, we can know God. But insofar as he's revealed himself, his will, his wisdom, his knowledge in his word. I like uh, William Cowper. He's one of my favorite hymnists. He has a very crazy story. This is what he says, reflecting on this text. <clears throat> Blind unbelief, meaning person just walking up to God's plan that's an unbeliever. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter and he shall make it plain. Make it plain in his word. God doesn't need to interpret his plan for anybody, but he does make it plain in his word. Yet we don't know his, all of his motivations. We don't know all the depths that are behind God, but he does give us his word. Praise God for that. This ought to draw us in to worship. This reality that we see further depth of God, but we can't go past it, should draw us into worship. When we're studying our Bible and we're having something trouble, troubling us that we don't understand, we read something like Romans 9 through 11 that says, God shows mercy to whom he shows mercy, but he hardens the heart of whomever he wills. That when we read that, we go, I don't get that. I don't get how God's good. I don't get how that works. That should draw us into worship. Like Paul, as he worships, as a result of this hard theology. But for how many of us is that the truth? How many of us, when we come across something we don't understand, it's new information to us that goes against our presupposed understanding of who Jesus is, our presupposed culturally inherited version of what God is. He's like holding bunnies with rainbows and all these things. When that bucks up against, when we read the scriptures, when we hear a teaching and we think, that does not line up with what I thought, how many of us say how deep God's wisdom is? Far deeper than mine. Or what do we do? I'm not going to that church. 
I'm not, he said this about that, and I, did, I didn't understand what he was supposed to mean, but I know, I know who my God is. I don't need to investigate any further. No, thank you. We harden our hearts. Am I right? Is this just me? Maybe that's just me. I'm suffering alone in this. Often when I come across something that challenges my view, that comes from God's word, I go, hmm, I'm not going to think about that anymore. I'm okay. I'll just keep, I'll keep, I'll keep in my lane. Paul, his response is humility. I, I obviously have not understood God as I thought I did. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom, the knowledge of God. I pray that that would be our response even today. Of course, we're not running the marathon, but we're certainly, uh, we're certainly getting there. I pray that our response would be worship. I think most of us, you'll see, see this a lot on Twitter, we're kind of like embarrassed of God, of the truth of God. We're kind of embarrassed trying to work like his PR guys, so we're trying to hide all the things that he says that are kind of offensive. You know, Zach gives a great example, especially when he's talking with other pastors. He says, what text would it be if you just slapped the Bible down and you had to just read a scripture and not offer any buffering, not offer any kind of explanation? You just read the scripture and you said, that's our scripture this morning, and you sat down. What scripture, in reading it, would you be like, I don't want to read that one. Culture would not like it. This, this group might be offended. People might hate that. We have to recognize we are, not, we are not good PR agents for God. We actually just end up making God in our image. This is how I love everybody, so this is how God ought to love everybody. We ought not to do that. Rather, instead, we must humble ourselves, approach God with humility, recognize He is far greater. His thinking is far deeper than I can even fathom. Let's move on to verse 34. <clears throat> For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? So Paul is just expanding his argument from 33. In the next two verses, he's going to use Old Testament scripture to say, I'm not inventing what I'm saying. This is from the Old Testament. And he's also going to use that to kind of invite in the Jewish believers who are discouraged like he is. As he sees, where are all the Jews among the church? He's going to use these passages to kind of encourage them. So I want to pay attention to that. Isaiah 40.13 is where this text comes from. And it says, wow, very good with the slides. <laughs> Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Now listen, the context here is dramatically important and amazing. Isaiah is speaking this to Israel in the midst of their exile. They're under Babylonian rule. They're being oppressed by the Babylonians. They're actually in oppression because of their sin. God says, you're not worshiping me, you're worshiping idols, therefore I'm going to let Babylon raise up and they're going to be your oppressor. And so they're in the midst of this oppression, they're in the midst of this enslavement, and then Isaiah comes out and he says, guys, speaking comfort to you, good news. It won't always be this way. One day God will deliver you. And so Israel's weary and they're, they're burdened and they've seen these Babylonians, these Gentiles take all of their riches. They've seen them take all of the things that were promised to them and they go, how can that be? What is God doing here? Why are we in this exile? And Isaiah says, you don't know what's going on. Who is, what, have you measured the Spirit of the Lord? What, who shows God his counsel? Are you as smart as God? Are you on the same level as God? Do you know what he's doing in this situation? Behold, the nations, like Babylon, this great strong nation, it's like a drop in a bucket. God, it's not too difficult for God to overcome. If he wants to show mercy to you and harden their hearts and completely do away with them, they're like dust on the scales. There's something on your weights that you don't wipe off because it doesn't add any weight. It doesn't matter. It's not going to affect the weight on your scale if you have dust on it. They're nothing. It'll go on to say that the Babylonians are like emptiness to God. So this sounds familiar to the, the Jew in, in the church in Rome. They begin to think, I'm seeing all these riches taken by the Gentiles. I feel like the promises of God offered to Israel have been just 
given to the Gentiles. What's going on here? What is God doing? Paul says, you don't know God's mind. He doesn't have to come to you for counsel. He wasn't like, oh, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Like, this is a real mess. Hey, Adam, what should I do about all this? He's never done that with any man. No one, he's never needed any man's counsel regarding anything. He is sufficient within himself, within his Trinitarian nature. And so this is meant to call back to encourage in the same way that you were exiled, that your fathers were exiled to Babylon. You thought there's no hope. God cannot save the Jews from their plight, from their exile. Paul is encouraging those who are saying, where, where are all my, my Jewish brothers at? My kinsmen according to the flesh, as Paul says, who he has agony in his heart over them not uh, accepting Christ as their Savior. He says in the same way that he brought Israel out of captivity from Babylon, he can do that again. God can freely make Israel jealous of the Gentiles' relationship with God so that they want to accept it too. And that's exactly what God's going to do. In this moment in time, that's what Paul is, is talking about. Paul writes, he, he wants to encourage Jewish believers like himself. Yes, it may seem like the promises have been abandoned, that God's abandoned you, but God has not abandoned his people. He's faithful. He doesn't, he doesn't break his promises. And just as he rescued their fathers from Babylon, he will soften the hearts of a great number of Jews in some future day that we don't know about. Paul's encouraged. That's why he's worshiping. I want to quickly just say this relates to us very closely because a lot of us, I think, as we endure suffering, as we endure difficulty, we begin to feel abandoned by the promises of God. Do you feel abandoned? When you feel abandoned, it is important for us to recognize that your current perspective of this current moment in time pales in comparison to God's infinite knowledge. It surpasses time. God will accomplish what he's promised just because you're enduring suffering, which God actually promised you you would, so he's actually being very faithful to his promises. Just because you're suffering, you may feel abandoned. God is not abandoning you. He'll work things out to his glory and for your good and sanctification. Zach was talking about this morning in theological equipping. Verse 35. Who has given a gift to him, to God, that he might be repaid? Who has given a gift to God that the giver might be repaid? Paul includes this, I believe, as a critique of Jewish pride. So again, he's speaking this doxology, and I think a lot of the Gentiles will go, hey, this is a great doxology, but the the Jews, acquainted with this Hebrew literary style, are going to go, this is for us. What he's saying here is for us to recognize, to hear, because he's speaking their code. <laughs> the church in Rome evidently struggled with some sort of pride and arrogance. We see it come up a lot, and I think he's addressing that here. A lot of people are saying, uh, I've followed the law, I've kept God's, I've done everything that I'm supposed to, why then are these people who've done nothing, they're not even circumcised. They haven't even done this one thing that enters you into the covenant in their mind. Why are they getting all these blessings and I'm not? And Paul says, God owes you nothing. He's indebted to no one. He doesn't give to people because he owes them a debt. This comes from Job, actually, where Job is saying, my whole life is destroyed. It's a story, if you're not familiar with Job, where uh, <clears throat> basically a man's life is completely destroyed by the devil and God allows it to happen so that God might display his glory and so this comes from Job where Job is saying my whole life's in shambles I've always prayed I've always done all these righteous things I've always done all this stuff and God's response is who's given me a gift that I would have to repay them I'm the source of all things anything you have is from me you haven't given me a gift I'm not I don't owe anything to anybody or as many Jews, I think, have thought that God owed salvation to them on account of their relationship to Abraham. I'm an ancestor of Abraham. You owe me salvation because of my lineage. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. God does not owe anything to anyone. He gives everything out of his mercy. Paul is making crystal clear that Jew and Gentile, man, woman, slave, free, Whatever, whoever you are, the mercy of God is given solely by the will of God. And it's not based on, as he said, as Paul said earlier in Romans, 
It's not based on human will or exertion. It's solely by God's mercy. Everything you have is a gift from God by his mercy. And he gives this mercy out of his deep wisdom and knowledge. God's not Santa Claus where he has to give the nice people the gifts and he's obligated. He owes this debt to the bad people, the mean people, to give them coal. That's not what we're talking about. God gives to all out of mercy, simply by his mercy. God owes you nothing for your church attendance, your prayers, your appearance of holiness especially. Everything you have is from him by his mercy through the work of Christ. When you feel distant from God, if you feel distant this morning from God, what's going on in your mind is you're thinking, because I have done these good things, God wants to be close to me. And therefore, if I don't do these good things by prayer, going to, I haven't been to church in a while, I haven't read my Bible in a long time, if I don't do these good things, then somehow I'm further away from God. You think that God owes you something. God owes you nothing. Everything you have is by his mercy. If you think God owes you something because of something you do, you're probably believing that God owes you something because of something you have not done. And that is not the gospel of Christ. That is this strange, idolatrous apparition. That is not related to the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is that God has given you everything. This will bring us eventually, or right now, to Romans 36, 11, 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 36 just points back to these rhetorical questions asked in 35, through 34 and 35. Why has no one been God's counselor? Because all things are from God, through God, and to God. Why has uh, no one paid him a, a gift, given him a gift to which he's indebted to them now? Because from him and through him and, and to him are all things. This is just an answer to that. And I like uh, Tom Schreiner, who's a great uh, scholar, biblical scholar. He says that God, this is meaning that God is the source of all things. He is the means by which all things are accomplished. And God is the goal of all things. That's what Paul is summing up his doxology with. <clears throat> so for instance, God has given you everything and he's given to the believer salvation. He's given to the believer, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. He's given salvation. It's from God. You get no credit. It's from God. And in Paul's context, the Jew was given all he had. He was given his ancestry, his birth, by God. And now Gentiles are given all that they have by God. Therefore, salvation is from God. It's from God. And the means of salvation, the means by which this is accomplished is what? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Christ serves as the means of salvation. So the, the Jew doesn't have the opportunity to say, I follow the law. I do all of these things. I've even sold all my possessions and given it to the poor. Apart from Christ, it's like dust on the scales. It's nothing. Valueless. Before God, we are sinners, condemned. That's his judgment. In Christ, blameless, sinless, perfect, righteous. In Christ. Something we're declared to be, again, as Zach talked about in theological equipping. <clears throat> and then finally, God is this reason for all things to him, are all things. He is the reason for all things. All things purpose themselves towards one final end, which is God, specifically his glory. Isaiah 43 tells us that humanity was actually created for one purpose. And what was that? For God's glory, to glorify God. Not that he lacked glory, but so that he might be glorified through showing mercy to disobedient Jews and Gentiles. Through us and our disobedience, that he might show mercy to his own glory. So rightly, Paul ends his discussion of God's plan of granting salvation to Jew and Gentile with worship. His doxology is saying, from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. To God alone be the glory forever. To no other. Salvation is not about you. It's all about God. There's this temptation to say, well, I made the decision to follow God. That was provided by him as well. 
Everything you have is from God. So that God gets all the glory. And to that end, all things are purposed. So the final thing I just want to say is that for a lot of us, we have difficulty worshiping because we have a difficulty being comfortable with this reality that God is so much deeper than us. We would like for God, we think it would be much easier for us to worship God if he was a little more relatable. Or at least we try to craft God in our image so that we can understand him. But what worship will that lead to? At least it'll last two weeks and then it'll be drained again. That's why so often, rather than doing the hard work of studying theology, in order to increase worship in the church, a lot of people will just turn up the kick drum, have a little more ambient piano, say the chorus just ten more times till we get the tears. That's how you know the Spirit's moving. That's what we'll do rather than the hard work of acquainting ourselves with God, being willing to say, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense to me. I don't know what God's doing here. And that's okay. He's glorious because he is far greater. The depth of his knowledge and his riches, his wisdom are far deeper than I can fathom. Praise be to God forever and ever. This will be our song forever and ever. God be glorified forever and ever. Amen. With that said, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite the volunteers to come up who are serving communion. And then we're going to kind of walk through some, uh, some questions uh, as we go through communion. So why don't you bow with me. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. God, your glory is beyond us. We cannot fathom it. <laughs> Who are we to, to fathom the depths of your wisdom? Who are we to fathom the depths of your knowledge? So we thank you, Father, for the mercy of Christ. We thank you for the execution, the perfect execution of your will, your, your sovereign grace to us, of your plan of redemption and salvation. Pray, Lord, that you would, you would teach us to, to value, to approach your throne with humility as we ought. And ultimately, God, that you would be glorified in and among us forever and ever. It's in Christ's name that we come to you and that we pray this. Amen.